Choir for blessing us with that beautiful music this morning. My friends, we believe and follow the word of the living God. So I invite you now to turn, please turn with me to our scripture lesson this morning. It's actually uh, taken from Matthew chapter 2. I'll be reading from verses 1 through 12 as opposed to 13 through 18. So again, Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1 through 12. Uh, If you are in need of a Bible, I encourage you to grab one of those red pew Bibles in front of you. Once again, Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen where it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. It's a little bit of an obstacle course here. If I don't knock over a poinsettia or light myself on fire, I'm doing well. Before we dive into God's word this morning, let me just note, um, thanks for me to do the choir who sounded wonderful. Um, And let me just also note, I know that some of y'all have some secret musical gifts, right? And I'm sure that you're thinking to yourself that in order to be in something like choir, there must be some rigorous series of tests that you undergo and a boot camp that Brad puts you through. But that's not the case. All you have to do is show up to choir practice and, um, and carry a tune, and you too can be a part of that group. So I would encourage you all to think about that, to take your singing out of the shower, and um, put on some clothes first, I guess, but then come to choir practice with it. <laughs> um, likewise, if you play an instrument, if you're busting out some blues chords on guitar, praise team will be starting in January, and there's a good chance for you to use those gifts there, but it's just a good thing to share. With that said... Let's turn to God's word this morning and pray with me as we do. God and Father, I just pray that you would um, be with us as we dig into your word, that you might meet with us and teach us, that through your word and the spirit active in it, we might um, just come to know you more. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. 
Pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So there's this question that I think that this familiar text about the wise men is trying to address um, and really kind of challenge us with. And it's this question that I think none of us ask out loud, but that almost all of us have an answer to in our heads and in our hearts, and that that answer actually really shapes and messes with the way that we do Christianity. And that question is this. The question is, what does a Christian look like? What does a Christian look like? And don't, you know some right answer to that, I'm sure, if you've been to Sunday school. Don't think that right answer, right? But what I'm interested in is what, down in your gut and in kind of the back of your head, what picture you have, right? So some people, for example, they picture somebody like this, you know? Um, No comment on that, but, you know, with the pearly white smile and the nice suit who's really put together and slick and seems like he's got it all, or if you're maybe younger and a little more savvy, instead you're picturing somebody like this, right, who's hip and cool with everybody and cool with Jesus, too. If you're from another background in tradition, maybe your ideal Christian looks something like this, Um, right? Who looks a lot like the guy from The Princess Bride, too, which disturbed me all week. Um, Or, (laughs) if you've had bad experiences with the church, he looks maybe like this, right? And then for all of us, all of those pictures get mixed together sometimes, and mixed together maybe in America, too, with this guy, right? Who I feel like all of us have a little bit of somewhere in the back of our heads as well. What does a Christian look like? Right? Okay, again, like I said, we all know that none of those are the right answer, right? That the right answer is supposed to be everybody. But I really think that we are conditioned to have certain pictures and certain expectations. We are, and so is everyone in the world around us. And it wasn't really different in Jesus' day. The picture looked different, right? Suits and ties hadn't been invented yet. It was the good old days, at least in that respect. And the Simpsons weren't even on TV yet. It was that long ago. But there was a picture of what a member of God's people looked like. Um, It was, in Jesus' day, a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a teacher of the law, right? Someone who rigorously kept the law of Moses and who was ethnically a part of Israel and who was a successful member of the kind of ruling elite. Somebody who looked like this, which I realize is a less familiar picture to us, all right? The Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and priests. That was the ideal Christian, the ideal follower of God in Jesus' day. And the whole point of this story, the story of the wise men, was that they weren't that picture either, or any of the ones that we have. In fact, they were basically a combination of this and this, all right? Um, And that was not the picture of the people that would herald Jesus' birth that anybody expected. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But rather than dwell on that up front, let's dive into the story and see why I think that's what it's trying to tell us, all right? So starting in verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So Jesus has just been born, and these people show up looking for him, all right? Just to note, because I feel like it has to be said in this sermon, it doesn't say that there's three of them, all right? Although there was that tradition that there was three of them because there's three gifts, which we'll get to later. And they're not kings, but what it does say about them is two things. It says that they're magi and that they're from the east, okay? Let's do those in reverse order. First of all, 
They're from the east. So Matthew doesn't say where. Lots of people that have commented on the past think it's from Babylon. It could be even, with Babylon's in modern Iraq, by the way. Um, you know, I mean, ancient Babylon would be there. Or it could be even further to the east, right? Rome has connections with India and China in this day and age. But regardless, that means two things. One is that these guys are foreigners, okay? They're from outside of the Roman Empire. They're from outside of kind of the normal known world for the people around Jesus. They're not national and cultural outsiders. They speak Greek and Aramaic with a funny accent. They would have drawn stares in town as they passed through. And these guys are Gentiles. They're Gentiles. Remember, in Jesus' day, um, it's a day when God's people are kind of constituted and structured around this national and ethnic identity. You could convert to Judaism, right? That's what it meant to become a part of God's people. But that was a long and involved process. And these people were not that. These people were also Gentiles. So they're from the east. And they're magi. That's the word that we get magicians from. And you often hear them called wise men, right? And that's, that's a, a correct thing to say, actually, in, but, it, but it has an old meaning of wisdom. It doesn't mean that they were really smart dudes, all right? It doesn't mean that they were just kind of really, like, up and savvy and educated. Um, they were wise men in the ancient sense that they had access to hidden wisdom, to mystical wisdom, to divination, In fact, in almost every other use of this word in the Greek world, it's used to refer to astrologers, right? People who study astrology, like horoscopes, although more serious, I guess, than that some things are going to happen this week and it's a good time to make a new friend. But that actually makes sense, all right? Since they say in verse 2 that there was a special star that they saw and that's that's what caused them to seek after Jesus. But it also doesn't make sense if you're alive in Jesus' day and reading this, because the Bible is straight up against that, right? It forbids divination and astrology and magic. Like in Deuteronomy 18.10, there shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. And it's grounds for God's judgment against Israel when they do this sort of thing, like in 2 Kings They burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking his anger. So the Bible is not a fan of the kinds of wisdom that these wise men have. So these, all of which is to say, these are really the unlikeliest people to appear in the Bible's story. They don't fit, right? They're not who you would expect to be there. People reading this story would feel like they were the wrong ethnicity and the wrong nationality, that they were sinners, which should make us wonder what it is they're doing there. Let's go on with the story. In verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him heard that this new king of the Jews had been born. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the wise men come to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, which seems reasonable if you're looking for a new king born to Israel. And they ask around, and Herod, who we talked about last week, the evil tyrant king who's currently in power, he hears about it, he hears about it, And he's not happy, right? And the rest of Jerusalem hears about it. Herod starts investigating then where the Messiah is supposed to be born. 
And so he gathers all the religious leaders and experts and people who study this stuff, and he asks them about it, and they tell him this is supposed to be in the town of Bethlehem, which was King David's hometown. And then in verse 7, Herod calls the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. So Herod tells the Magi this, and he sends them to find the child. And just to note, if you weren't here last week, okay, Herod, when he says he wants to go and worship the child in this passage, that is not true, right? Because as we find out what he actually does when the wise men don't report back, he murders every male child to and under in Bethlehem, all right? That's the text that we talked about last week. And so he wants to kill him, but the wise men go, and in verse 9, after they had heard the king... They went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. So the wise men go. But I want to stop there because there's something that is so easy to miss here in this story, right at this moment, but that is really crucial, okay? Here's what it is. Who did the wise men tell about the newborn Messiah? Right? They told everybody, right? All of Jerusalem seems to be buzzing about this news that they're here looking for him. Herod hears about it from the gossip on the street. And who knows that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem? Okay, maybe not everybody, right? Not every kind of like hired hand on every farm around Jerusalem knows this. But a lot of people know. Plenty of them do. At the very least, all the religious leaders who Herod calls know that the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So all of these people know... All the people we would picture, right? Those are those pictures. That's the ideal Christians, right? That's the ideal people of God in their day. They know where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And they know that he has been born. Or at least that he might have been born. And how many of them come to the manger in Bethlehem to worship this child? None of them do. (laughs) It's just these pagan foreigners heading to Bethlehem to meet the Christ. We said at the beginning that we all have these mental pictures of what a Christian should look like. And that is part of why those pictures are so dangerous, because often investing ourselves in those pictures actually keeps us from meeting with Christ. Here's what I mean. How could these religious leaders not be packing their bags for a trip to Bethlehem, right? How could they miss the chance, even if it was a tiny chance, to see if these guys could be right, to see if the Messiah had been born? Well, Matthew doesn't say, but I can guess at least part of it. I imagine, at least for some of them, that their religion was really a matter of routine. That they they had things to do, right? Responsibilities. The temple isn't going to run itself. The scriptures aren't going to be copied and studied. There are people that need to be taught. There are decisions that need to be made. There's the kind of upkeep of religion that needs to happen. There's all these good things we're doing, they say. We don't have time to come and meet the Savior. And look, it's easy for us to feel judgmental of that. But we can do the exact same thing. We're going to talk more about that in a minute, all right? There's another way we can do it. But one of the ways we can do it, that I do it, is just that I get so busy with the stuff out here, right? Whether it's just stuff in life or even the stuff of religion, that I don't make time to meet with the Savior. And so I think about the tragedy of these people not coming to Bethlehem, and I think about my own life, and maybe I'd offer a plea to all of us to consider this season, 
which is don't let good things crowd out the best things. Don't let good things crowd out the best things. We are busy people, right? We've got 24 hours in a day and a thousand things that we could be doing in those 24 hours. And that's not itself wrong. But I think they can create this trap for us. See, here's what I find myself doing. I, you know, I'm busy, and I look at the things that I'm busy with, and the question I ask myself is, are these good things, right? And the answer to that usually is yes, unless I'm, like, binging a Netflix show or something. But usually my answer is, yeah, these are good things, right? And that's good, because obviously there are bad things that we could be doing with our time, and it's, you know, it's better to be doing good things with our time than bad. But if all we ask is, are these good things, even if the answer is yes, the outcome can be st- bad and destructive. Because here's the thing, good things can be the enemy of the best things. I mean, think like think about a parent, right, who doesn't make time for their for their ch- children, all right? This is a, a familiar trope in our world, and some of us had parents like that. Some of us struggle with being parents like that. That parent, generally speaking, is not doing bad things with his time, right? It's not, it's that, I mean, he's, he, he's working and he's trying to provide for their family and he's exercising and he's having meetings and he's learning things and he's helping people and he's being a productive member of society. Those are all good things. The problem is his life is so full of good things that he's forsaken some of the best and most central things that he's supposed to do, Right? It's the point of the story of Mary and Martha in the Bible. You guys know this story? We tell, we tell it like Martha's this bad person, right? But she's not. She's actually, Jesus comes to their house and she wants to be a good host to Jesus and serve him and take care of him. And so she's, she's getting all of this stuff ready and Mary goes and sits at Jesus' feet and Martha gets angry and I feel like I would feel like I was justifiably angry if I were in her shoes. But from Luke 10, what Jesus says is Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. He's saying, Martha, you have let these good things distract you from the best things. And now I know that none of those choices are easy, right? Because it means when we say that we need to assess those things, that we're giving up good things when we, when we have to change our lives. And that's a real loss sometimes. But please, what I'd ask us all to do, and what I'm trying to do myself in this Advent season, one of the things, is to think a little bit about the unexamined choices that I make in life that prioritize good things over things that may well be better. To examine those choices and to seek to commit ourselves first and foremost to the best and most central things in our lives. So back to the story, though, all right? These religious leaders don't come. We see Jerusalem with all of its kind of elites that look really good not coming, but the Magi do. Let's finish up with them in verse 10. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So while the Christian-looking people stay, the Magi come. They come, and they bow down, and they worship. And they give gifts to this child, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Uh, gold we're familiar with, right? Frankincense and myrrh are both, they're actually like resins that you scrape off of the 
bark of bushes in the Middle East, and it was super hard and time-consuming to get very much, so they were really valuable. Frankincense was used for medical and religious stuff. Myrrh was used usually when you buried people, if they were rich enough to afford it. And um, some people have tried to see some symbolic significance in these gifts, and it's all interesting, but it's probably not in the text. But the point of, of all of this is they come, they bow down, they worship this child, and they give him these incredibly valuable gifts, right? More wealth than Mary and Joseph had ever seen. And just think about that for a minute. Think about what these magi are doing. They see this star announcing the birth of this king, And so they load up their donkeys or camels or whatever it is that they rode, and they travel for weeks with all the hardship and danger that traveling in this day and age, in that day and age, included bandits and lions and stuff. And they did this to find this infant and give him these expensive gifts and bow down before him, and then they left again. They weren't in it for something. Is to say. They weren't about how they looked to the world. They weren't getting anything out of it. They just came to give this child the honor due to his station. Because he deserved that honor. I actually love what the Magi do because I feel like that is a picture of Christian worship that's far better for us than anything we get from those pictures I showed you earlier. It's not interested in looking a certain way, in being busy with certain activities, in getting something out of it. It's coming to Jesus and giving him honor because he deserves it. So what do we make of that, of the Magi coming, and of this story of a whole? What does this mean for us? First, this story should remind us that there is no true picture of what a Christian should look like. There is just not one picture for what a Christian should look like. One of the things that breaks my heart, all right, breaks my heart and... Um, honestly makes me angry sometimes at the world, is that there are a lot of people who feel like the church isn't for them, who feel like Jesus isn't for them. And they think that because of their background, or because of how they dress, or because of their race or culture, or because the sins that they struggle with aren't as respectable as the sins that some of us struggle with. And I talk to those people And I have, I mean, I think about specific people, right? And I have said to people, like, no, that's not true, right? Like, the church should be a place for you. Jesus is for you. And you look in their eyes, and they don't believe it. And some of that's beyond our control, right? There are things in the culture or in people's past experiences with the church that keep them away from the church, and those things make me angry, but um, I know that we can't fix all of those things. But as much as it depends on us, we have to communicate to all kinds of people that they are welcome here, that Jesus is for all kinds of people. And some of us struggle to do that. I know. We feel like this is somehow watering down Christianity. Like some of these people, I mean, maybe they're sinning. Maybe they believe things that are wrong. And we want them to recognize that God is calling them to be holy and believe the truth. And that's all correct, but that is not the point. In the first place, a lot of the stuff that people get hung up on, that we get hung up on, has nothing to do with sin and righteousness. Right? People feel unwelcome in churches because of, how, because of the clothes they wear, right? Because, because they have tattoos, because they're in the wrong cultural group, because 
because they're in the wrong political party, right? They feel like they can't meet with Jesus for, because they have struggles in their marriage, or they have a beer sometimes, or they aren't physically good-looking, that they are the wrong social class or the wrong ethnicity. And I could list a hundred other things. And here's the thing, all right? None of those things are sin and righteousness. None of those things are truth and falsehood. I know that some of us have different convictions about a few of those things, but none of those things are boundaries that we can draw around what Christianity looks like. And so we have to work, and work hard, to never confuse those things with biblical holiness. And look, I say that, and at Kish, I think that on the whole, we actually do a pretty good job of welcoming people, all right? I don't want you to come out feeling like we're all terrible at this, but we all need to be mindful of that. Even more, and maybe perhaps more challenging from this story, let's say that a person is living in sin. Biblically, when it comes to who we want to welcome to come and meet with Jesus, and even in a sense come and join us here, that shouldn't matter either. So these magi were astrologers, all right? They were sorcerers. In the Old Testament law, they should have been put to death for the things that they did. But they come. So it shouldn't matter who we want to welcome and love, all right? Yes, becoming a Christian does mean acknowledging our sin and turning from it, all right? You can't kind of live in open, unrepentant rebellion and think that you and Jesus are just besties. That is true, but the model of the Bible is not that people fix their sin and then meet with Jesus. It's that they come and meet with Jesus, and in encountering him, in him meeting with them, they begin to see their sin healed. That we love because God loves us, Scripture says. There's not some requisite on the level of our love that we get before we experience that. And even if people come and meet Jesus, even if they start repenting, sin is still going to be something that they wrestle with. Because it's something that all of us wrestle with. Every Sunday before I preach, right, I pray consciously this prayer that's be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. And, um, and I pray that because it's true, right? But, but I, a, few, a few of you have asked. It's, it, it's also true that in Scripture, right, we want to say that we're saints too, right? That, you know, that sin isn't our core identifier, that because of Jesus' work we are saints and his children. And that's true too, but sin is still something that all of us struggle with as a present reality. We are all of us saints and sinners. That's how Martin Luther used to put it, that we are saints and sinners. And the church... And Christianity is meant to be a place for us to struggle with and work through that tension, not a place for us to see it fixed. And if you wrestle with whether you belong in a place like this, right, with all of that said, if you're not one of those people that feels like you're on the inside, but you feel like you're on the outside, um, look, Jesus comes for people like you too, right, no matter how you are. Over and over, we see in Jesus' ministry this reality that God is throwing open the floodgates of salvation to all kinds of people. In fact, one of the constant themes of the Gospels is how scandalized the people who look really religious and Christian and on the inside are by Jesus' willingness to spend time with and love and associate with people that don't look that way. And so if that's you, please come and feel welcome. And come and meet with Jesus. Because that's the other thing that this story ultimately tells us. Which is that what matters at the end of the day, it isn't what you look like. 
It is whether you're looking at the king, right? Whether you are looking at Jesus. The difference between the Pharisees and the Magi, right? It's not that the Magi were somehow better than the religious leaders. I think our temptation might be to read that, and there's certainly a condemnation of the religious leaders. But the point of this text is not that we should become pagan astrologers, okay? That's not what we're being called to. But the difference between the Pharisees and the Magi was that the Pharisees stayed in Jerusalem, looking out for themselves and their religious appearances, while the Magi came and looked upon Jesus Christ. Instead, they came and they looked on him and fell on their faces and worshipped him and gave him themselves. That is actually the right answer to the question we had at the beginning. We said, what does a Christian look like, all right? And that's actually a really interesting turn of phrase because the word Christian actually means little Christ. That's where it comes from, all right? The word Christian means little Christ, And so a Christian is meant to look ultimately like Jesus. And we aren't there yet, right? We're all on a journey there. But that means that growing in Christ, growing as a Christian, means that we need to take whatever those pictures are in our head of what Christians look like and get rid of them and instead seek to fix the picture that we have in our head on Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, being a Christian and growing as a Christian means looking to him and seeking to be like him. And here's the thing. The only way you can look more like Jesus is by fixing your gaze on him, by getting to know him, by seeking to be closer to him. All right? Ultimately, that's the thing that I hope for us this Advent season. As we seek after what is best in our lives, as we seek to come and meet with Christ, let's make him the one that we aim our eyes at. Let's make growing up into him our calling. Let's all of us turn and look at Jesus Christ. And as we gaze on him, let's be transformed. Would you all pray with me? Father, one of the things that that is both hard and beautiful to me is the example of your son who preaches truth and holiness and righteousness and love and grace and preaches that we are called to be like you and does so with the worlds, with, with the thieves and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, Lord. And I think about that and I just acknowledge that there is both a hardness and a beauty to that. I pray that you would teach all of us to follow that example, to proclaim your love freely and to give our love truly to all kinds of people in the world and to draw them to yourself, that we might be and they might be together sinners and saints, saved by grace and transformed by your good work. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Before our closing hymn, again, the order is a little strange, we're going to have our time where we give of our tithes and offerings. If you're a visitor with us this morning, I know a few of you are visiting, please don't, don't give to our ministry financially, right? I mean, no one will, will physically block you from, but we want this to be a time for the people of Kish to be giving to Jesus. We're not interested in your money. But in this time, this is a discipline for all of us as believers to give our hearts to the Lord. And so we pray that you would offer him your heart as well.
Please pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for life, and one more day to love. Lord, we thank you for granting us the gift of being your children. Now, Father, with thankful hearts, we give back to you. We dedicate these gifts in your honor and glory as thanksgiving for all the things that you have given us. Father, we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Please turn with me to hymn number 103, Come All Ye Faithful. (coughs) 